Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's just not finished. Hello, and welcome to Third Act. Today, I talk with one of my favorite people, Angela Jones, The Voice. Angela learned early on how to use her voice to advocate for herself and others by pushing her high school English teacher to include Black authors in the curriculum. She's kept using her voice as an educator, university senior administrator, and now as CEO of Washington STEM, a nonprofit focused on equity and STEM education in Washington State. Her voice got her to a CEO position, but it's also helped to change the lives of thousands of kids across the state of Washington. So Angela, thank you so much for doing Third Act. Welcome. Thank you, Liz. It's so great to be here. I've uh, appreciated just processing and getting ready and thinking about my story. You know, what is the story? You know, what I didn't mention is that one of the first times I saw you in action as the CEO of Washington STEM is doing a keynote for the STEM conference and you sang the opening. Perhaps the voice will also uh, render a song for us throughout this as well. So we'll see. You've got a great voice. Well, thank you. I haven't figured out how to do that um, while we're all working in cyberspace right now. <laughs> well, I think if anybody, you'll figure that out. So I love the story about talking with your English teacher and letting you write about the very controversial Toni Morrison, right? But um, tell, I thought you said to me that you were kind of an introverted kid. How did you figure out, how did you find that voice early on in, in being able to push back? You know, I, I was very shy, knock-kneed, pigeon-toed, no idea what to do with. I had a lot of hair, didn't know what to do with it. And so was really still trying to find myself. But this particular assignment, I'll never forget it. Um, you know, the teacher said, you know, choose a book that speaks to you about your life and your journey. And I, you know, as, as a Black student, wanted to choose a Black author and, you know, it was in that moment where, you know, even though I was an introvert, I had a stubborn streak in there and the stubborn streak showed up and just said, you know, none of these um, white authors, as good as they may be, are going to speak to my story um, growing up as, as a black student. And so really, you know, push back to say, if you want to hear about my life story, my voice, then you need me to, you know, you need to allow me to pick an author that represents me better. And, oh, and you realized then that, was that the first time you figured you got to use this voice to start advocating for yourself? That was the first time I used it. Okay. Not the first time I realized I should, the first time I had the courage to do it. And, and English literature was, was, is a great love of mine. And so this was a place where I was, I was you know, going to choose the battle. That's a really, really good one to start with, too. So you just mentioned English literature. You uh, got a degree from Washington State University in English Lit and Teaching, right? So it was yes. a combination. And so tell us about one of your early teaching experiences. I think you mentioned it was in Yakima and some of the sort of voice lessons you learned there as well. Yeah, I was actually in the Yakima Valley in a little town called Wapato, Washington, and I chose Wapato because I loved, um, you know, teaching students um, from the reservation. I wanted to, you know, be able to make sure that brown and black students continued to have hope and that the education system was hearing them. Um, and so I had a, a friend who is uh, from the Yakima Indian Nation and decided to go out there and, and spend some time um, trying to be a part of that education system. How'd you find it? 
How was it? It it was amazing. That's the place where I learned that no matter what the socioeconomics of families, no matter the circumstances, uh, parents, guardians, grandparents, whomever, they care about their kids' education. They may not know exactly how to navigate the system, but they care about it. It matters. And I loved that. You get called back to higher ed. So you've graduated, you've gone to Yakima, but then Washington State University, the Cougars come again. So what did, uh, why'd you end up going back or go, go there, make the switch from teaching into, uh, into higher ed? I, I had actually been a student affairs intern when I was an undergrad and working in the admissions office. And so they, they knew I was out there somewhere teaching and they had a position um, recruiting students of color to Washington State University, the Pullman campus. And so they asked me if I wouldn't mind you know, applying. And then I got an interview and went out there. And as much as I wanted to stay near students, you know, education and access to education has always uh, been a driver for me. And I thought, you know, if I could help students of color, uh, you know, envision themselves being on a college campus and having access to that, you know, that would help me move my goal even, you know, forward even more around access to education for communities of color. And so it was a tough decision. My principal was not happy with me, but, um, you know, I, I don't live life with, with regrets. Uh, but it was, you know, the right, right decision at the time. And then you moved to the Spokane Public Schools into HR. Again, it was recruitment. Um, by that time, I had um, had my my son was about one, almost one. Yep, DJ. And, yep, DJ, the little giant. He was almost <laughs> one. And, issue, and not six, <laughs> six or whatever he is now, yeah, right? <laughs> he wasn't six, five at the time. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, he, he was a baby and I was traveling quite a bit for WSU. And it got to the point where I just, uh, is, I, I you know, told myself, you know, it starts at home. And so I needed to be home more. Um, with with my kids, and he's my youngest, but again, he was one. And so I reached out. I was, uh, you know, volunteering for Spokane Public Schools, and I said, you know, I'm thinking about a life change. If you guys ever have anything, you know, let me know. And they said, please check our website. And they had a job for um, director of employment services, so head of hiring and recruitment um, for all certificated staff. And I applied, and it was a great chance again to still impact education. That's always my my. Uh, decision-making lever? Like, will it still have an impact on students? So I felt like if I could be a part of hiring the people that would engage with students, uh, you know, directly, um, that would still help me um, keep my goals moving forward. So you you mentioned to me when we were prepping for this, that uh, your voice was sort of in the aggressive, aggressive mode at this point. What do you mean by that? Well, that, that stubborn streak I mentioned earlier. <laughs> yes. um, so I, I started to move right around the time of that story in my high school towards learning how to be an extrovert in certain situations. And so I began speaking out. And then when I got to college, I became quite a student activist and, you know, would, would crash meetings. I wasn't invited to, to discuss budget. I mean, all of the things, but I, I continually threw rocks at the giant. Um, there was never a conversation um, of like, you know, could, can I, can I use inquiry and ask, you know, why this is happening, how we could change it. I would just come at people with a flamethrower. I'm very good with, you know, my, my wit uh, moves very fast. And sometimes mm-hmm. it was things I was using, you know, for evil and not good. 
Um, it's a, a superpower I was not wielding correctly. Ah, interesting. You know, knowing you now, I can't see you doing that, but I, you, yeah, interesting. So was it also that way when you were in Spokane? No, I, I had started to learn a bit of diplomacy. My father, so I, I'm part Filipina and mm. part Black, and my father um, always jokes around that I get the aggressive-aggressive side from the Ramos side of the family, which is my mother's side. And so it got to a point where I would call my dad for some wisdom, and he would say, whatever you do, don't let Ramos rise. <laughs> wow. And so I hope your mother what, wasn't in the room, was she? Oh, my mother knows. She okay. knows. She, she right. owns it. And so we talk about that, about, you know, I have decisions to make when I'm getting upset or I'm I'm wanting to tackle something and which tool in my tool belt. And there has to be more than one. And at that time that you're talking about, there was only one. It was like, I'm coming at you and I'm coming fast and furiously. Yeah. Wow. You also, so when you're in Spokane, you, you end up doing quite a bit of legal negotiating through or uh, some legal issues and you decide to go to law school, which I think is an interesting twist because you've at what, how many years out of undergraduate school are you at this point? Oh boy. At this point I was 40 two years old. So what made you decide? Cause that's, I mean, you've got a child at home or multiple <laughs> children at home, got a pretty big job and you go to Gonzaga, no slough school there. And what made you decide to take all that on? When I was five, I knew I wanted a doctorate and I didn't know what that meant. I just, it was just something my parents were like, you should be a doctor. And so that's what I put in my head. And so I ended up starting my uh, PhD at WSU, but it was going to be in education. And I just felt like at the time it wasn't the right thing for me. And so I waited several years. And then, um, you know, I was talking to my boss in HR at the time, and we were both interested in law degrees. And it was really hard because you couldn't just do it part-time at Gonzaga. And so I was like, you know, I'm not in a space where I can quit my job. I was a single mom at that point. And so when my son was eight, Gonzaga came out with a two-year accelerated law program. This is typically three years. Okay. And so I ended up, you know, told my boss, if I get into that program, I'm going to go ahead and do it because I've always wanted some type of doctoral degree. A JD works for me and I'm doing all of this legal work in HR and I don't have the background. And I also love understanding systems because I also, during this time, feeling like in order to amplify my voice or the voices of others, I needed to understand the systems I was trying to to work within and tackle and change. Um, And so I felt like a law degree, you know, I I understood the education system really, really well. I wanted to understand law and I also wanted to understand policy. So in looking back, I mean, I just ask because maybe people listening to this might be thinking, it's too late for me to go back to school to do something like that. I mean, what when looking back at it, which wasn't that long ago, I mean, are you happy that you did it? Do you think it's it's added to your career success or you glad oh, you yeah. did? Yeah. I, I have zero regrets. And, and people will say, well, well, it, it costs a lot to go to law school. It does, but I, I, I didn't just invest. You know, people say when you do a college degree, you invest in your future. I'm not just investing in my future. I'm investing in generations of, of my family members coming after Angela Jones. And I'm also investing in the students and the families I'm trying to help because you need knowledge, certain knowledge and skills to actually be able to help people in a way that's going to be transformational. Yeah, particularly when you're doing systems work across the state because there's just, there's so many different components. Yeah. 
So then you get a call to Eastern Washington University. They find you to become the chief of staff, which is, you know, further departure from English literature. But you you said to me that you look at, and you mentioned it earlier, that you look at everything in terms of where you can have the greatest impact. So tell us a little bit about your thinking there when you made that switch. I'm always looking at, you know, when I became a teacher, it was like, wow, it impacted whatever kids were in my classroom. When I became an administrator in a school district, I was making decisions that impacted every classroom and every family. And then when I looked at, you know, potentially being the chief of staff for Eastern and chief advisor to the president, that's a much larger organization. And be able to, in that particular role, I was advisor to the president, but also had oversight of all of the policy at the institution. And so again, as we're trying to change systems, we know policies often get it, get in our way. And so we have levers to be able to pull to change things that could, you know, possibly make it better um, for students accessing education. And Eastern was an access institution that, that you know, their student body is very diverse. Uh, First-generation students, um, students of color, um, students from rural communities, um, all students I'm passionate about, uh, were all being educated at, a, at an institution, regional institution like Eastern. So I thought, you know, if I could be at that level, at, a, at that executive level, again, that, that impact is far-reaching because once you can change one student's trajectory, again, you're changing generations of students. And if I can teach them what I learned um, about, you know, how to grow and be confident and amplify my voice, again, greater impact. So your voice, you go from the knock-kneed introvert who speaks out to flamethrower, aggressive, aggressive (laughs) voice. (laughs) Again, I can't imagine it. And then what happens as you get through law school, get into Eastern, what, how do you, what changes do you make to your voice then? You know, those changes were happening through all of those steps you just talked about, because one of the things I started to think about, and I, in between, I also got a master's of science and communication studies. So studied a lot of communications theory. Oh, that's a good you know, idea. Yeah. Me just saying right. it doesn't mean somebody's receiving it the way I want. So communication is greater than me just verbalizing, right? I have to be able to figure out how to persuade someone and, and, and understand how people listen taking information and then how I can get them to the output that I'm hoping for. Was there a special uh, course there on how to deal with teenagers and early 20 year olds? <laughs> if there would that person be rich? <laughs> that, yeah, exactly. The, the, the lost cause chapter. But anyway, keep going. Sorry. But, but that shaped also my leadership theory. And so how I led, you know, is tied to how I amplify my voice. And so all of that was happening as I was moving through these different, you know, seasons of life, these different positions. And so getting to this point at Eastern, and again, I'm always looking at what's your superpower. You have a lot of power as the chief of staff. You have the president's ear and the president has the ultimate, you know, decision-making power. And so again, having to understand that, okay, now it's not just about making sure people are hearing me. It's really about making sure people are hearing the needs of the students And then how does that translate? Because I also had to think about the needs of faculty and staff that are serving those students. So trying to figure out how you balance amplification of voices meant that I had to be able to move through many different constituencies and build trust. And so that became a part of that amplification is also having the trust and the relationship. So it's all coming together 
to form how I lead and move through the world. Yeah. And you said to me that you, you really learned to use data to sort of amplify your voice as well. Oh yeah. And I love data. I, I geek out on data because for some people, again, it's how they take in information. Some people are fine taking in anecdotal qualitative information, the story. Um, others need to see some factual things and some need both. Yeah. Yeah. I've certainly have encountered that in my career as well. So, you know, I, I've said this to you before. It always strikes me that your next move, given where you're at, would be to become a university president. And why didn't you pursue that path? You know, I'm not sure that path is completely dead, but but it's but it's not in this season where I'm supposed to be. And again, I love thinking about systems and how do I connect all the systems. And so right now I'm looking at education and how do you connect all of the components that form the education systems of the state of Washington, right? And then and then think nationally, right? How how are we connected? Preschools through um, K twelve through colleges, um, all the way through the employers. And so the STEM opportunity presents itself last year to become the CEO of Washington STEM. And again, it's you. You had said to me during the interviews, like like looking at all the systems and being able to connect things, as opposed to just being able to look at things at Eastern or at Spokane, but right. to look across the state and having again having a bigger impact. Yeah, I, I wanted that bigger impact. And I recognize, you know, because my parents asked me the same question, like, you're, you're poised to you know, head towards the presidency. Why would you leave now? And again, I never keep a door, you know, I, I'll never close the door mm-hmm. to it. But I also felt like Washington STEM gave me opportunities to learn some things that in the future, um, you know, maybe 10 years from now, I'll be, that would actually make me a better president. And what's been the biggest difference that you've seen in going from a, well, multiple educational institutions to running Washington STEM, a, a fairly large nonprofit here in the, in the state? You know, one of the things that, that has been a challenge is when you're, when you're on a college campus, that's your learning community and you have the ability, and it's like a small city, but you have the ability to think about the culture of that and figure out how to influence that because it is somewhat insulated. At Washington STEM, we are so connected to various, I would say, small cities, school districts, colleges, universities, employers. It's really challenging to figure out how to build that learning community. And, and then also knowing that, you know, at Eastern Washington University, I had a, I had a staff of about 175 you know, when you include some of the students. At Washington STEM, I have a, a small but mighty staff of 20. And to be able to lift the work is a bit differently. Resources are different when you're going from a, you know, state um, institution to a a nonprofit. Uh, Those are some of the biggest challenges having to consider how you fund that work. Right. Right. Yeah. Because we don't, it's a year to year thing to, to get our donations. And what about being a CEO? What's been the biggest change there? (gasps) The biggest change, you know, is going from being the advisor that's staffing somebody up to being the one being staffed up. Um, when I first started as CEO and, you know, I have four, four chiefs who are on my executive team and they would, you know, ping me with notes like, hey, don't forget this, don't forget that, don't forget this. And I thought, well, why do they keep reminding me? Do they think that I, you know, I can't do this? And then I was like, oh, it's, it's their job. Angela, you were the same person. It's their <laughs> job 
to remind you, you know? And so I've, right. had to, I've had to learn to be like, Angela, they're your four chief advisors, just like you were a chief advisor. That was the hardest shift to make. The, the other piece was realizing like, oh, you know, the first moment where I went, oh, they're all staring at me because this is my decision to make. Mm-hmm. Oh, got it. I can't, you know, I, I can't turn around and see somebody else behind me going, what do you think about that? It's like, mm-hmm. no, right. make the decision. The buck stops with you. Yeah. So I would suspect that some of our listeners, because they're thinking of their third act, might be thinking about making the change from corporate education, whatever they're in, to running a nonprofit. And I, and I'm going to ask for your advice. I will say that, you know, I don't, I don't think it's an easy leap at all. So because of the systems work you have to do and not being able to control everything. I mean, what advice might you give people who are listening if they're contemplating making this move? Wow, that is that is a really big question. So, you know, part of, part of it is understanding that as a nonprofit, it is very different from running a business. And, and that was a, 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 even a leap for me because an institution the size of Eastern does run much like a business. And thinking about the how and the why is is a little bit different. And so as much as I really would love like a weekly meeting where I'm like, all right, tell me my numbers, run me through this, run me through that, where are we at in our goals? It's a much different way of having to think about how we move partners forward in the work. And we have a lot of nonprofit partners that are focused on, you know, equity um, and justice and we're having to figure out how we bring in policy and some of the business norms that do need to still happen so that you stay afloat. And so thinking about the lens, nonprofits are often working towards some form of justice, um, whether it's a social issue like homelessness or for us, it's education reform. And that's a little bit different bit of a lens, even though corporations do have philanthropic arms to it, it's still very different in how you run um, and a nonprofit organization. And my observation in watching you, because I, I think you're really very, very skilled at doing this, is it's so, it's so nuanced. And when you, in business, you think about building stakeholder management, it's critical to any decision making in business. And, you know, you spend years figuring out how to do that with your clients or your teams. But then it's, it's the same, but even harder I think uh, in the nonprofit world, because the objectives are not necessarily so clearly laid out, like financial objectives where you have to hit your numbers. And here, like we're trying to move students toward credential attainment, which is a multiple, multiple step process that involves so many different components and a lot of humans, right? And and when I, I really humans, parents, parents and kids and teachers and unions and people who may or may not act rationally, right? And it's just, it's a lot different. It's a lot harder, I think. And generations of barriers, right? uh, uh, Yes. And I should have mentioned that generations of barriers, some of which are really weird. And I mean, that you just, just stupid stuff, right? Just so stupid that you look at it, you and I will look at something and go, oh my gosh, you'd think the state could fix that, right? Yeah, and I'll give you a tangible example of, of a huge difference. So when I was uh, vice president of, um, I held two vice presidencies at Eastern as well. And so when I was leading um, student affairs, 
every morning, like before I got out of bed, I would pick up my work phone and I would look at my numbers in terms of student recruitment, admissions, and enrollment. That's what I lived by every single day is my team bringing the numbers in. You know, that's not the same thing I can do when I wake up at Washington STEM. And, you know, you can't measure, you know, we're trying to get, you know, students in Washington to earn credentials, whether it's apprenticeships, two-year degrees, four-year degrees. And I can't measure that necessarily on a daily basis. I can't measure that progress in the same way. I mean, you now have a much bigger voice in the state. So just for our listeners who don't live in Washington, similar probably to every, to lots of states, there's definitely a rural and urban divide that here is very geographic because there's Western Washington, which is King County and Seattle and all of its suburbs. And then there's sort of the rest of the state, sort of east of the Cascade Mountains. You've moved from Eastern Washington over to Western Washington, although you're from here. And now you've got this, big voice because you're also a member of the Black Coalition here. You've taken on more responsibility. So your voice has gotten bigger. Talk, why, how did you get into that? How, how has that been? Sure. And, and I think that's an important. And thanks for the reminder that you've got listeners from, from all over the place. We do. Hello to our listeners from out of state. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but for people to, to recognize that the largest percentage of the population, you know, lives in the smallest part of the state of Washington along the I-5 corridor. And so, you know, I lived in Eastern Washington for 30 years. And one of the biggest frustrations, which also kind of goes back to your earlier question of why make the leap, you know, to Washington stand back to Seattle um, I also wanted to amplify the voice of Eastern Washington because, you know, the capital is on the Western side of the state. Um, King County is, is, you know, in my opinion, one of the most powerful counties, which houses the city of Seattle. And I wanted to make sure that folks over here um, understood, you know, the plight of the whole state of Washington. And so that's what I love is that Washington STEM is a statewide organization where I can reach in every region. And in doing so, have also learned about the, the plight of, of, you know, the Black community, which is near and dear to my heart as well, you know, having grown up as, as a Black woman in America. And, you know, had the opportunity to meet some folks from across the state and say, you know, how do we help, you know, Black communities to, to build an infrastructure to make sure that we're empowering our, our communities. And so we actually started the Black Future Co-op Fund in June, you know, quite frankly, in the wake of George, George Floyd's murder. And so, you know, with that tragedy, tragedy, understanding how do we empower ourselves to, to make things better? I don't think, you know, we can't always wait on a system. And so how do we help students understand credential attainment? How do we help uh, our communities understand civic engagement? And so um, there's four of us that started this from, you know, King County, Pierce County. I'm in Snohomish County. And then my voice at the table is also a representation of, of uh, Eastern Washington um, community. You're double hatting. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, that that's uh, and it, it's been awesome, actually, to have a seat at many tables, not just for the Black Future Co-op Fund, but just as an educator. Now your voice is strategically aggressive. Yes. What does that mean? That means I'm not necessarily coming in uh, with the flamethrower at full throttle. Uh, maybe that just, you know, a little bit of the light is on. Uh, that I'm, I'm still firm um, in, in my convictions, but coming in using a lot more inquiry, asking questions first before I throw a grenade, and helping people explain and checking my understanding because maybe I'm misunderstanding or maybe they're miscommunicating and there's a way to clear things up. 
and reach and, and understand whether or not we're reaching towards the same goals. So I think, you know, I take two lessons from what I listened to you. One is how you've shaped your voice. And I didn't even know about your master's in communication, uh, which is, that's that's very useful. I, you know, everybody should go and do something like that because it is so hard to learn how to use your voice correctly and be persuasive and not be a flamethrower, which we've, I think most of us have probably passed through that stage in our life at one point or the other. Um, so there's that, the shaping of that, but there's also your look, you're looking at impact and how you, Angela, can have an impact on things, you know, getting bigger and bigger. And as I think about third acts and people who are maybe done with their jobs or their big career jobs and are thinking, how can I make a big impact? I mean, any thinking or advice there to, to folks and, and how they might strategically think about that? And I know I'm throwing you a question I didn't have scripted, so... But I no, know that, you. <laughs> that's, no, that, that's okay. I mean, because that that impacts, it does start with you. Like, what is it you actually want? What's the imprint you actually want to leave on this earth? And that's a question I've asked myself, uh, honestly, in elementary school. I, I had an old, I was, I think, a bit of an old soul. And I was always thinking about how do I leave the earth a better place than I found it? Um, and my newest question, and sometimes, you know, Liz, I get tired of amplifying. And so one of the newest questions I've been asking myself over the past six months, um, and I'm going to blog about that probably today, is how do I make sure I'm being a good ancestor? There, there are days I get tired where I'm like, why do I always have to amplify? Why am I always the amplifier? And then it's because, you know, because it's your superpower, Angela. And when you get tired, you can rest. But a hundred years from now, is somebody going to benefit from the work that you've done if you keep going? Probably. And I may not ever know, you know, I won't, I won't know if I'm being a good ancestor or not. Um, but my hope is I'm making the decisions now to do that. Uh, so that's a great way to look at things. Uh, yeah, fantastic. So I know you're not done yet because you and I talk about it all the time. And so you've got a fourth, a fifth act. As you think about it, I mean, is there, and I know you don't know what that's going to be, but any roles or platforms that stand out to you or opportunities that as you think strategically about continuing to make an impact that you're headed towards or you might want to obtain? You know, I I mentioned earlier that I haven't completely shut the door to a university presidency, Um, but one of the things I've really been thinking about is, again, how do I continue to make that, you know, systemic impact? And I've been fascinated recently, even since you and I, you know, initially first, you know, talked about doing this, about what it would actually feel like to be a funder. Yeah, you know, to actually I've give the money sat, away. Yes, I've never <laughs> sat at that table. But but again, right to, to strategically fund and to have the resources to make the connections. So right now at Washington Stem, we're trying to help create this system, but we have to rely on funders to fund the work. Imagine if 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 I could, you know, have some role with a fund as a funder that understood what systems level work look like and actually funded in that way. Because oftentimes people fund programs which are necessary, but then they don't think about the underlying systems that keep those programs going. So 
I have no idea what that would look like, but it would be incredible to be able to have that role. Maybe Mackenzie Bezos needs you. Right? Like right. shout out anybody on who's listening who knows Mackenzie, <laughs> you know, give a shout out for your yeah, Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so so where can we find you online? You know, I actually um, have a blog that, and and it's called uh, CEO ARJ. I'm talking to myself because this is all about lessons learned. I read it. Yeah. We'll put it in the show notes. It's great. Yeah, And so I, I'm talking to yourself. I love that. (laughs) Because I actually went to executive boot camp before I took this role. And there's just so many things I didn't learn because you have to learn them when you're sitting in the seat. And so I've been writing about them and, and I haven't written in months because, you know, just a warning to your listeners, I blog when I'm moved to blog. I am not a, every Tuesday, you're going to see a new thing, but I keep things up because hopefully somebody finds something interesting in there as we move through this crazy world. Um, and as we head into 2021, my son and I are doing visioning boards tonight. He's 14 years old. And then I'm going to, I'm going to do some blogging about um, last year, I wrote a personal strategic plan. And so I'm going to talk about how it went this year, <laughs> but CEOARJ.com. Uh, and then I, and of course, WashingtonSTEM.org um, is my, the organization that I lead. Right, right. And always, uh, as I'm on the board, uh, lovely, great, fantastic organization if you want to check that out. Okay, so we're recording this on New Year's Eve uh, of 2020. So happy new year to you and to DJ. And uh, as always, I look forward to working with you uh, in the 2021. And I hope that you will come back to the podcast. I keep saying that Angela's going to be the next governor of Washington, or maybe not the next one, but the one after that. So when you are the governor of Washington, I hope you won't forget about Third Act. Oh, I will not forget. And, and I appreciate yeah, letting me uh, process at the end. And this is a great way for me to kick off 2021. Yeah. Well, anyway, thanks so much, Angela, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act Podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.